This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. It is the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. It is still the Ken Campbell free edition. And, you know, we've reached the, the juncture of the offseason where I guess it's quote unquote mid to late July and things get a little quieter in the news cycle. So, Ryan, today you and I are doing the all mailbag edition. I think it's going to be pretty fun. So, let's go. Question number one. We're going to dive right into them, okay? First one is from sportspassion.de, which to me sounds like a Danish website, possibly. And sportpassion.de says, what do you think of the Avs offseason so far? They were rumored to be major players for some free agents, but ended up trading more than signing. Are they still missing one big piece, a scorer or goaltender, to finally make the next step? So, Ryan, for this one, you get the first dibs on the answer. I like what the Avs did this summer. I thought GM Joe Sackick showed some good patience. And, you know, you look at this team, they are certainly ready to contend. I mean, were it not for some bad injuries, they probably would have, would have happened after that. Obviously, uh, free agent time is really fun for everybody, but a lot of teams make mistakes. And I think the key with Colorado is they didn't make mistakes. You know, they made some good deals and they signed some of their own guys to new contracts. I think the only thing we don't know yet is if Philip Grubauer is the goaltender that can win them a cup. We just don't know yet. He was hurt during the playoffs and didn't see the full complement of the abs uh, because of that. I think if it gets to the point, you know, around the trade deadline next season where they're still unsure, maybe they get s- some sort of security blanket, uh, you know, a veteran who's been there before. Um, it, it's tough because I was going to say, oh, Hendrik Lundqvist would be perfect, but like Washington's probably going to be in the mix as well and they're not going to trade him. Um but like somebody of that ilk, you know, like, again, Yarrow Halak would be great, but I don't think he'll be available. So, you know, I think Grubauer is kind of the X factor, but I like what they did. You know, the, the key thing is to not make mistakes. And Joe Sackick uh, definitely had an error-free summer uh, or summer. So I, I think that's key. Yeah, I'm with you. I do really like what they're doing as well. And you look at what they brought in versus what they've they've sent out. So, you know, Vladimir Mesnikov is gone and Kita Zadorov, but you're you're adding Brandon Saad to a group that already got a lot deeper in the last year and Devon, Devon Taves to that blue line, which I love as well. And I agree with you, Ryan. Maybe it's, you know, there could be a goaltending decision to make. But the thing is, you know, Philip Grubauer, he got hurt. But for much of the season, he had a lot of stretches where he was pretty solid. And I still think he's done enough. To, to earn another shot to be the full-time starter. And then you reach the trade-in line. If you need to kick the tires on another goalie, like you said, Ryan, you do it. And we do know that, you know, in terms of chasing a bigger fish at a, at a skater position, we know that the Avalanche were in on Taylor Hall. It was reported last week that they they made, I think, kind of a low-ball offer. I think their offer was reported to be just $4 million for one year. So it was sort of the Brad Richards thing rather than the HOSA offer. It was like, you can come play with us for one year if you want to take almost no money as opposed to one big offer but what I wonder like maybe there's a handshake agreement with Buffalo who I don't think is going to be good and then Joe Sackett could just trade for Taylor Hall at the deadline but then Hall's getting eight million dollars instead of four who knows so I do think Colorado will be in on a big ticket guy come trade deadline this year they have the cap space this is going to be the year to do it and I think it it actually could be Taylor Hall because I do think it's not going to work out in Buffalo uh 
question number two. It's this, this user is just called $26. So $26 asks us a question. Will it be a million dollar question from $26? I don't know. But $26 asks, the Blackhawks seem to be making moves that are at, a cross that are at cross purposes, letting Corey Crawford walk without a legit replacement, but then signing Matthias Janmark, Lucas Walmart, as if they think they will contend. What do you think is their plan and do they have one? So I'll start on this one. Um, you know what? I think there is a plan. And I know that, you know, someone like Jonathan Taves is upset at how things have gone. But the truth is, to me, I say kudos to Stan Bowman for being a realist and he's making the right decisions this offseason. I reported on this right after the, the, the Blackhawks were eliminated. They were not a good team this year. They were terrible. They are one of the worst defensive teams in terms of chances allowed in the last 20 years. They had the 23rd best points percentage in the league. They had no chance to make the playoffs. They won a playoff series because Edmonton's goalie was goaltending was really bad and Chicago got good goaltending. The, the Blackhawks were actually even worse than their record this year. It was just Corey Crawford played so well. They were terrible. And I think that Stan Bowman understands that. He didn't get a big head because they won a single play-in, not even playoff, play-in round. And they got steamrolled by Vegas after, right? So that was who they really were. And I think what he's doing is understanding that, you know, we're not going to be aggressive. We're just going to add a couple of depth bodies, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, and even if you look at excluding this draft, the future watch rankings with Kirby Dak up on the team now, um, the highest remaining prospect on the Blackhawks is ranked 80th overall. So that even their farm system still needs a lot of work. They need more exciting young players. So I, yeah, I, I just think it's not a time to be excited yet in Chicago. And that was, I think the headline of the article I wrote was, you know, temporary expectations for next year's Blackhawks. That's where I stand. What about you, Ryan? I agree. And I, I think that, you know, bringing in guys like Yanmark and Walmart, that doesn't make you a contender by any stretch of the imagination. You know, like Yanmark, I kind of see him as a baby Leo Komarov at this point, uh, a guy that other teams seem to just hate. Like, I don't know if anybody got punched in the face more during the playoffs than Matthias Yanmark. And I feel like that's kind of a badge of honor, uh, you know, when you're representing for your team. He was clearly getting under guy's skin. But I think what this tells to me is that, you know, you've got a bunch of young forwards that are either coming up or finding their way. You don't want to just gift them roster spots. So with Yanmark and Valmark, what you're doing is you're saying, you got to beat these guys. These guys have NHL experience. Uh, they're a bit older. So, you know, Alex Nylander, like, you got to make sure your game is tight because these guys will take your minutes. And I, I think it's a good strategy. I do not think the Hawks are a contender by any stretch of the imagination. I think that in a best case scenario for them, they're in the running for an Owen Power and Atirat, you know, one of those high-end 2021 guys. Like a lottery pick would be great for them because what I see right now is a franchise that is going to build around Kirby Doc, Alex DeBrinkett, Adam Boakvist on the back end. They've got uh, several other young blue liners finding their way, Nick Bodan, uh, Ian Mitchell, Chad Chris. Um, this is a team in transition. And yeah, sorry, Jonathan Taves. Uh, but right now your signed goaltenders are Colin D'Elia and Malcolm Subban. And that is big trouble right now. If they don't find somebody else to uh, fill the crease, uh, that to me is a goaltending duo that says uh, we are tanking. Yes, I, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Oh, and you just unfroze. You were frozen for part of that, but suddenly you came back to life. It was like a supernatural painting like what the Vigo the Carpathian and Ghostbusters yes. came to life and started moving again. I'm like, Oh my God, he's alive. Uh, <laughs> next question is from Dan Toberfest. I want to go to Dan Toberfest or maybe, I don't know. Dan Toberfest sounds like it could be a boom bust kind of party. Uh, it's for Dan's only. 
Yeah, exactly. It could, like there, there's so many scenarios. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's just yeah. a party of Dan's. Maybe there's no sausage there. It's not like it's not an Oktoberfest kind of party. It's just a bunch of guys named Dan. Who knows? Uh, and Dan Dope, Dantoberfest wants to know: Does Chris Osgood belong in the Hall of Fame? You can take the first crack this time, Mr. Kennedy. I'm going to say no. I think that Chris Osgood was a very good player. But if you look at his individual resume, he was a second team all-star once, which is great. Uh, And he won a couple of Jennings trophies. However, the Jennings trophy, if you really think about it, is kind of a team award because it's, you know, lowest goals against average. It says the team in front of you is good. It's not best save percentage, um, which would indicate more of a, you know, goaltender's responsibility. You know, you look at those Detroit Red Wings teams that he played on, it was just wall-to-wall Hall of Famers. And yeah, he's got the cups. And yeah, he did the job. But I think this was a matter of, you know, uh, a good player on a team that filled a role. Um, Sort of like, you know, like Ken Danico on the Devils. Like Ken Danico got his rings. And if you talk to the Devils and their fans, They'd be like, yeah, Ken Danico was great for us. But it's like, but Ken Danico was, you know, a, a part of the machine. He wasn't driving the machine. Much much like Chris Osgood was part of the machine, he wasn't driving it. So great career, um, you know, he's got his rings, but I think it, it probably stops there for me. Yeah, I'm with you. It's almost like Osgood's career is the inverse of Henrik Lundqvist or Carey Price. It's like Osgood has the winning, but nothing else. And you know, I, I've said before, my own Hall of Fame, my imaginary Hall of Fame, my main criterion is, you know, how many years were you, were you top five or top ten in your position? And it's debatable if Chris Osgood was ever a top five goalie in any of his seasons. He was a Vezina Trophy runner-up once, so I'll give him that. His next highest finish in his 17-year career was seventh. He only received a vote for the Vezina, only a vote in four of 17 seasons. So to me, he's not close. Uh, I, you know, you could argue that the same people that voted for Kevin Lowe would be sort of on the Osgood train because Lowe was also a cog in a machine of great players, but he was a winner. So maybe you, you could see Osgood get in someday. I mean, Rogi Vashon got in, uh, but to me, he's not a Hall of Famer. And it's no disrespect to Osgood. He's Hall of very good, really good career, but just he was never dominant. No one ever had the conversation, is Chris Osgood the best goalie in the league? Never, not even close, right? So to me, it's actually not close, despite all the wins. Next question, oh, what a fine Irish name. It's from Eamon Devlin. What a great question from Eamon Devlin now, talking to Ryan Kennedy and Matt Larkin. It's all Irish podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> the question from Eamon Devlin is, this is, a, this is a big one, okay? So Eamon, I did homework for this one, just for you. Because you're a fellow Irishman, what restrictions are there when placing conditions on a traded draft pick? Could a team moving salary to sign a different player put a condition on a pick related to the signing of another player's or team's overall cap spending as a form of risk management. So I contacted an agent friend for this to get a better understanding of the question because I wasn't 100% sure if if I was exactly knowing what you're asking. It turned out I I did have it right. But the main takeaway, I did not know this until yesterday when I talked to our agent friend, is that in the return to play, the provisions of the new CBA as part of the return to play, uh, the bargain that was was worked out between the players and, and the league, there are certain new new rules, and I'll read the example that the agent, he sent me a specific chunk of the CBA just to read to you, okay? So trade conditions that make it harder for a player to resign with the team that acquired him 
will no longer be allowed. For example, during the 2018-19 season, the Rangers traded Matt Zuccarello to the Stars. In return, the Rangers received a 2020 third-round pick that would jump to a first if the Stars re-signed Zuccarello, and that will be disallowed because it de-incentivized signing Zuccarello for the Dallas Stars. And it, that's unfair to Matt Zuccarello. What if he really loved it there and wanted to return there, but the condition made Dallas be like, oh, we like you, but sorry, we, we don't want to have to give up a higher pick. So my understanding is that the conditions you're, you're referring to, uh, Eamon, I believe a lot of them are, are being taken away. So any conditions that are, you know, contingent on if we sign this guy, I think are likely to, or are less likely to be allowed now. That's my understanding. That's hopefully that answers the question. If it doesn't, uh, just send me a tweet and I'll try and be more specific for you. Ryan, do you have anything to add or do we just leave it at that on this question? No, <laughs> what he said. Yeah, but no, I, I mean, I've heard sort of the same that they wanted to streamline things and you know part of the problem was a lot of the conditional picks involving the return to play made things messy where you know like calgary didn't know if they were keeping a pick from the luchas trade right up until like the draft so you you want to avoid those situations obviously yes exactly so next question this is from matt s and matt asks with devon taves going to the avalanche is there any chance that Bowen Byron makes the team? Excellent question. I had the same thought. Ryan, you're up. This is a vexing one. And, you know, because of the timing of the 2020-21 season, it, it gets really complicated. You know, if you look at the Avs depth chart right now, they've got a pretty sturdy top six where it doesn't look like there's a role for Byron because, you know, you've got your offensive defensemen, you know, Kale McCarr, Samuel Girard, and now Devon Taves, you know, all, not just offensive defensemen, but mobile guys that can move the puck up the ice. And then you've got Eric Johnson uh, and Ian Cole and Ryan Graves, who are sort of perfect complements there. So as far as the top six, it looks pretty set. Having said that, you know, when injuries will come in and, you know, the world juniors were starting to get a sense of, you know, how the bubble is going to uh, be formulated, you know, how long the players might be in the bubble. And, you know, it probably will impact NHL training camps, you know, assuming the NHL starts when they want to, but we don't know. I mean, if the NHL doesn't start until February instead of January, then a player such as Bowen Byram could easily play at the World Juniors, be finished, you know, quarantine wherever he needed to, and jump into Colorado training camp. I feel like at this point, if he makes it, it's going to be kind of as that seventh guy, but he's a fantastic option if somebody gets hurt. Now, I'm not sure if you want that scenario for your top prospect. Is it better for him just to go back to the WHL for one more season, and then next year you find – a place for him. It's, it's a great problem to have if you're Colorado. It's like, oh no, we have too many awesome young defensemen. But it's something that does need to be addressed because you want to make sure this young man gets the ice time he needs to continue to develop. For sure. And really great points. And, you know, everything that I'm kind of hearing, just different guys that I've talked to, whether it's agents or even, you know, team trainers in the last few weeks, no one seems to believe that the season's going to start Gen 1 which is what the NHL is claiming for now. I really think it's going to be February 1st is a much more, much more realistic goal, especially if the league wants to put fans in sands at some point. Even that, I still don't know if that will happen. But as a result, I, I do think we see a scenario in which Bowen Byron can play in the World Juniors and 
come to camp and then he gets a chance to beat out someone. And the perfect scenario here is that that sixth, you know, that, that group that you named, McCarr, Gerard, Johnson, Cole, Graves, Taves, they're all totally legitimate NHLers. So does any scenario where Bowen Byram or Connor Timmons, for that matter, are beating out any of those guys to make the team, it means they're playing really well to do it. So it's win-win. I think either, you know, either, either Colorado has already a perfectly established top six and their young guys can develop more, or if Byram or, or Timmons, they outplay any of them in camp, then it's like, okay, well, that's even better because they're playing so well. And then Byram can get maybe his nine-game look but you don't want to, of course, burn the year of eligibility yet on his entry-level deal. But I think, again, I just I, – Joe Sackett continues to impress me, the way he's organizing this team. And I've said it a million times. I just – I'm a firm believer of – and it's not even this old school, hey, you got to earn your spot. It's just more like mentally for a player, it's good for his development that he has to – if he, you know, if he makes a team, if he beats out someone – he knows for his confidence that he really earned the job as opposed to, okay, here, 18 year old Luke Shen, here's the keys. Good luck, sir. Go play. And, and that messed him up. I remember Luke Shen told me that it, it had a big effect on him. You know, he had a lot of responsibility at that age. So kudos to Joe Sackick. Um, next question is from big Mike and big Mike says, if no one throws an offer sheet out, for example, on uh, Mikhail Sergachev or Anthony Sorelli, then what is the purpose for even having an RFA offer sheet? as a possibility for GMs to use. I totally understand that. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a forever offer sheet uh, skeptic because again, this is a hard one to explain just verbally in podcast mode. So if you want to know more, feel free, big Mike to, to, to tweet me later, but the, the rules for draft pick compensation are so complex and they're so they're, they're often catch 22s because there's a weird AAV, like a cap, a salary inflator where, where you make an offer if you're the team trying to sign an offer sheet, but it actually blows it up to a, a bigger pretend number in terms of the draft pick threshold. And because of that, it's so hard to escape offering up four first rounders. And if you try to reduce your offer, so you don't get it into the, the super multiplier, then your offer is not, not good enough for the player to want to sign it. So it's really hard for the top guys. It's a little bit more likely for intermediate guys. And I feel like Sergeyev and Sorelli are, are closer to the top tier than intermediate at the same time, you know, there's still motivation to do it. And I did a story on this a while back where I talked to Kevin Lowe in detail about, you know, his barn fights and all that kind of stuff with Brian Burke. And he explained it to me, you know, he and Burke were good friends at the time, but he said, uh, the way he put it was, if you're a GM, even if you have friendships, you're beholden before anything else to your fan base and to your owner, and it's in the rule book, it's allowed. So you got to follow that for the sake of your fan base and ownership before your friends or your, your fellow peers. And I asked him, I said, well, but then what if you have, whatever hurts your ability to do your job later because you burn bridges, but you know, so there's, there's two sides to it, but there's still, you know, there's, there's motivation. I think sometimes for a GM to do it, if it's an intermediate guy, overall, I think it's very difficult. So Ryan, that's sort of the perspective I got from talking to Lowe back in the day, but do you have anything else you want to add to that one? Yeah, I think it becomes more of a tool for GMs to uh, kind of threaten each other in a way. And, you know, we, we actually, we did have an example this off season where Columbus Blue Jackets GM Yarmo Kekalainen said, look, we, we moved out some salary because we were worried somebody was going to offer sheet Pierre-Luc Dubois. And they made the trade. Um, well, a couple of trades, Marcus Nudevara went out, Ryan Murray went out, um, Alex Venberg um, was bought out. And, and that gave them the flexibility where they were kind of out of the danger zone there. But, you know, this is something where it's, it's not for fans because it's very impersonal and it it really becomes kind of like something on a balance sheet. Um, You know, we, we saw it with Montreal 
and Sebastian Ajo, where they kind of forced Carolina's hand to give Ajo that contract. Whereas Carolina, from what I heard, was looking at, you know, some vastly different numbers for Ajo. So you can really put somebody else in a competitive disadvantage regarding the cap by either signing one or, or in the case of Dubois, just there being threats out there of it happening. So, you know, for GMs, it really is a spot where you don't want your top RFAs to get to that point. Um, and, and you gotta be smart and you gotta be quick about it. And, you know, the actual cases of, offer sheets happening we we know are few and far between it would be a lot more fun if it happened all the time but realistically especially now with the flat cap um you know yes it does hamstring teams in signing their own guys but i mean if you're gonna put an offer sheet out there you got to cover it so you have to have the cap space to try to sign away anthony sorelli Sergachev. and right now for a lot of teams it just wasn't there and we also have to point out the players have to want to go to your team. So you can't just like save up a bunch of cap space uh, and, you know, be terrible and expect Anthony Sorelli and Mikhail Sergachev to be like, yes, I will take that offer sheet. Very, very good points. And another thing that, you know, the conditions you need for offer sheets, you have to have a huge discrepancy. I remember an agent told me this too. It was like, you need a discrepancy between the offering team, what they think the player is worth and what the team that has him thinks he's worth. And if it's one team's like, well, we think this guy's a $3 million player and his current team's like, uh, okay, sure, go ahead. Then that's when you get an offer sheet situation. And then the player might be insulted by that and then be more likely to want to leave as well. Kind of reminds me of the Dustin Penner situation back in the day. Um, and also, you know, like you said, Ryan, with teams operating because of the fear of an offer sheet, that's why Devon Taves is a member of the Colorado Avalanche, right? Because the Islanders have Matt Barzell, Ryan Pulick, and Taves, RFAs. They don't even have enough money to sign two of those guys, let alone all three. And what happens? They have to, sh- they have to send out an important player from their core just for futures, which I think is bad news for the Islanders. And I put them on uh, something I wrote on the website yesterday. Just they're, they're high in my off-season panic rankings because they're having to take out important pieces just to, to make sure that nobody takes a run at Barzell. Uh, next question. We got another Mike. It's raining Mike's Mike Bouvier this time with the next question. And it's another hall of fame question. That's the fun part about the mm-hmm. all Mike podcast. You can go all over the place with topics. And Mike says, do you think Reggie Leach should be in the hall of fame? Ryan, what do you think? I feel he's another borderline guy. Uh, again, you know, looking at the stats, uh, led the league in goals one year. So, you know, this was before the Rocket Richard Trophy existed, but we will give him a Rocket Richard Trophy nonetheless. Uh, you know, second team All-Star once. Uh, one Conn Smythe Trophy, very nice, and a couple of cups. Um, but, you know, again, going back to your, was he ever the best player in the league? Um, you know, no, he was up there. He was a really good player. But again, you know, if you look at those Flyers teams, uh, you know, Bobby Clark was the engine and, you know, they always got really good goaltending during that era. Um, they had a great comp, you know, they were tough all around. So, you know, Reggie Leach, got his cups. I feel he's like on the cusp, but he's not quite there. Um, like, I don't know if you compare him to Brad Richards in terms of a resume uh, or if there's somebody else that, that you thought of that might make more sense. But I feel like I, I'll, I'll put it this way. 
you know, we talked about Kevin Lowe. Uh, if there was a bunch of like ex flyers on the hall of fame committee, then he would probably be in. Um, but like, I, you know, obviously he doesn't have the same uh, friends as, as Kevin Lowe or Rogi Vashon did. Um, so I feel that, yeah, Hall of Very Good, as we say. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the only the only reason I would put Reggie Leach in is because they put put Clark Gillies in, and he played on some dynasties with great players, and I think he's a pretty borderline, you know, great power forward, of course, but just based on overall impact, I I, I think he was a bit borderline. So if you judge it by by that rationale, then maybe you put Reggie Leach in. But overall, you know, playoff monster. He's got the he's tied he's tied for the single play single postseason record with 19 goals. Uh, but really, when I look at him, what I see is Jonathan Chichu plus Cups. So guy who went supernova for a short amount of time, led the league in goals once, just like Chichu did, playing with a Hall of Fame center, future Hall of Fame center, which is what Chichu did. Difference is that Leach's teams won Stanley Cups. But otherwise, that's the kind of legacy that I see. A guy who was quite good for a short amount of time, but overall was just merely a, a good player. So I think, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't put him in the Hall of Fame. Funny Reggie Leach starts back in the day. A few years ago, I did an oral history on the Broad Street Bullies, talking to all the guys from those teams. And somebody told me, I forget which, which player told me this, but Reggie Leach had like giant forearms, like a, just enormous Popeye forearms. And he would go to a bar after games and stuff and just arm wrestle people. Reggie Leach. Yeah, that's Reggie Leach for you. That's awesome. Yeah, and so. you know what? I mean, when we have these Hall of Fame conversations, part of the problem is that, you know, like at least in my opinion, the Hall of Fame has botched so many inductions um, you know, particularly in the past 10 years that it's, it's really hard to have this argument where it's like, well, Dino Cicerelli's in the hall of fame. It's like, okay, well then the bar is not as high as it probably should be. And, you know, we go back to like Dick Duff is in the hall of fame. Um, it, you know, if you, if you redid the hall of fame, uh, from just like an objective point of view, it would look vastly different, but, because it's up to a very small amount of hockey insiders, it's gotten to the point where you can easily say like, well, that guy's, that guy wasn't as good as Reggie Leach. How come Reggie Leach isn't in, or is like, or is Chris Osgood better than Rogie Vashon? I don't know. I mean, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers, but it's quite possible. Um, so it's really difficult to have these conversations because like, you might be right, Mike, but it's like if you're saying who should be in the Hall of Fame, who was one of the best players for a long, sustained period of time, it's a, it's a slightly different conversation. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, it's, it's still something we've talked about doing. You know, do we do a, a big project for the Hockey News re, redrafting the Hall of Fame? But the sacrilege, like people would just, they would lose their poo, I think. Especially like <laughs> families of, of people who are already in the Hall of Fame. It would just be, yeah. and it would be I think it would be sexy. Which is understandable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I still, I'm still holding that hope that we try it someday. Uh, next question. Oh, and Steven, producer season, Steven says, people would rip us. I'm sure they would, Steven. I'm sure they would. Next question is from FlamesFan80. Who is slash are the Flames looking for to trade a core player? So Ryan and I were trying to sift through this question. I believe what FlamesFan80 is asking is, is, I think, two questions. So what are they looking for and are they looking to trade a core player? I personally think it would have happened by now um, because, you know, you've already, you've already brought in Chris Tanev. You've already brought in Jacob Markstrom. You're not going to, you've lost TJ Brody. I don't think Travis Hammond will be back, but a lot of teams are starting to get their cap situations kind of wrapped up and other than, you know, signing their RFA. So I, I'm not really seeing 
a blockbuster trade happening now. I think that's a mistake. I've said already that I think this flame group needs to be blown up. I don't think they have the horses to win with what they have. And I think uh, Brad Trilliving, unfortunately, you know, well-liked guy, good guy, but I think he's on thin ice. And even bringing in Markstrom, you know, he's coming off the best season of his career. But for the most part, he's always been good, but he wasn't great until this year. So we don't know 100% that they're getting a $6 million goalie. They might be getting just the, the Markstrom of the previous decade of his career, which was like, you know, a reliable 9-12 save percentage guy. And if that's the case, then they're not really getting a huge upgrade from what they had in net. And yes, you've got you've got Chris Tanev, but then you've lost a couple guys as well that are important members of your top four on defense. So I don't know if the Flames are any better. And I think they should be exploring a major trade. I don't think it happens till next year. Ryan, do you agree or disagree? I feel like I'm willing to give the Flames one more season because Sean Monahan and Johnny Gaudreau, we've seen what the upside is with them, and they clearly didn't hit that level this past season. So I think if you're Brad Treliving, you, you say to those guys, like, look, you're my top line, act like it. And, you know, it was a weird season in Calgary, you know, Bill Peters resigning midway through, um, you know, when the, the club was playing fine at the time. So it, it, was, it was a weird one, but, you know, it was good to see Jeff Ward right the ship and, and for them to have a little bit of playoff success early on. But, I, you know, I look at this team and, you know, soon it's, there's going to be a bit of a transformation, but more so on the blue line. Like Mark Giordano is in his late 30s already. He's got two years left on his contract. Um, but you do have Rasmus Anderson coming along very nicely. I, I thought he was pretty nice in the postseason. Um, you know, Yusuf Alamaki is finally healthy. That's going to help. So have this. You, you have these guys that are young liners, but not that young. And I think that'll sort of help. And obviously Chris Tanev, a stabilizing force back there. So I, I'm willing to give them another season and say, okay, well, you know, like Markstrom, if he can be pretty good, and I understand what you're saying about him coming off a career year, but if he can be pretty good for them, and if Monaghan and Gaudreau can sort of rediscover their magic, then you have that great second line, headline by Matthew Kachuk, which I think is only going to get better. And then you look and it's like, okay, well, it's a, it's a pretty solid squad and, and maybe they can have a bit more playoff success. And I, I think if, you know, if, if they flat, then yeah, obviously you blow it up and you look at Monaghan as, and, and maybe even Goudreau as the first guys that you move out. Good. I might, I'm possibly about to sneeze. So if there's a delay in this podcast, it's because I'm going to sneeze. It's coming any second. Okay, I think I've staved it off. Nice. Next question is from Luke Diamond. And Luke asks, maybe out of left field, but depending on the Tampa Bay Lightning's cap situation, could Steven Stamkos be trade bait? It's a question I have asked as well on Twitter. Uh, Ryan, you can get the first crack at this one, and then I will join in. Yeah, personally, I don't see it simply because of, you know, uh, his recent injury history. And I know a lot of Tampa fans will say, like, he has – he hasn't been that injured over the course of his career. That's fine. Uh, but recently he's had some problems. And, you know, if I'm a team that wants a player like Steven Stamkos, and even though he took a hometown disc contract, it's still a big contract. I want to make sure a number one center or a top line, you know, a top line forward. And, you know, right now with Stamkos, he, he needs to get healthy again. 
it might take a while, realistically. Um, I, I, I just, for now, I stay away because I, you don't know how healthy he's going to be. And if you're getting a guy right now who, you know, he's getting to that point where, you know, 30 years old and on, it's a lot different than 25 years and on. And you got that many years left on the contract. I think you got to be super sure. I feel like, you know, Tampa's the spot for him right now because, you know, there's so many factors that could make a team regret picking his contract up. I think he's great in Tampa. Everybody loves him. You know, great leader. Um, that's the spot for him, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I said, if there's one team that I think would be a realistic fit for Stamkos, one team that is, you know, all in, really pushing hard for a Stanley Cup, probably willing to take a risk on, on even his injury history just because they've established themselves as such an aggressive spending team. It's the Vegas Golden Knights. And I said that when free agency started, I said that I think Stamkos actually made more sense for Vegas than Pietrangelo because top line center was Vegas's number one need, not defense. And now what's happened, you know, Elliot Friedman a few days later actually reported that, that uh, Vegas was in on Steven Stamkos and made an aggressive pitch. I don't know if that's still the case that they're still trying to get him. But the thing is now, of course, you've brought in Pete Trangelo. You've tied up a lot of money there. You have to clear a lot of money to make room. So I don't know if they can still consider Stamkos a realistic target without having to move out of body. And I know that Friedman also reported that Max Pacioretty could be the guy that would have to go the other way. And then, again, it's the same thing I said about Pete Trangelo. If you're, if you're moving out so many members of your core, does, you know, is it just merely offsetting at best? Are you actually making your team better? I'm not sure. But it's too bad. I really think that that was a fit. And if I were Kelly McCrimmon, I actually would have prioritized Stamkos over Pietrangelo just based on team need. Because the one thing I think Vegas was missing more than anything in the playoffs was that go-to number one center. Now they still don't have one. And they've traded away their number two center. So I think the center position is a big problem for Vegas. They've added Pietrangelo, which makes them strong at a position at which they were already very strong. So I just don't know if they've allocated the resources in the right way this offseason. Just my opinion. We'll see if I'm right. Next question comes from JCTMTG, whatever that means. Okay. I love this question. If you could be GM of any franchise, who would you choose and why? So I had a couple answers. The easy one, you know, Seattle will be a lot of fun. I think the expansion setup, it's just, it's designed to favor the new team. A lot of people think it's going to be harder second time around. I don't think so because of the flat cap. Every team's going to be in a bind again. Every team's going to be desperate for help with their contracts again. And I think that Seattle's going to get a bunch of sweet deals again. So I think it'd be fun to manage that team. But my real answer is, are you sitting down? Yes, you are, Ryan. The Ottawa Senators. Mm. And the reason why I pick Ottawa is you get a Canadian market, which is maybe fair weather, but when the team is good, very passionate, it can be a really fun environment to have a team that, you know, is playing in this hockey mad market when the team is good. Low expectations. So it would be easy to win over the fans because the team has just been so bad and it's rock bottom. And lastly, I'm from Ottawa originally. I have a lot of family there still. So, you know, managing the Senators and uh, I can visit my aunt and uncle and cousins whenever I feel like it. That's kind of cool too. So my official answer is the Ottawa Senators. Ryan, who you got? All right, I have two answers as well because it is such a fun question. Uh, The first one would be the New York Rangers. And, you know, you have a, you know, a rebuilding roster that's got a lot of great assets and you have a star player already in our Panarin. Panarin. Uh, you know, you have a great score, Mika Zibanejad, and you're adding all these great prospects. I really like some of the kids that they've drafted already. Um, so that's fun. 
And, you know, winning in New York City, I mean, that's, that's huge, especially because, like, the Knicks are trash, go Raptors. Um, and, you know, they probably always will be. So you, you, you can get more spotlight if you're winning um, in New York right now than maybe you would have uh, 30 years ago or whatever, whenever the Knicks were good last. Um, my second answer is, is similar to yours without the, the, the geography is Detroit because you're at a rebuilding phase. Again, you're getting all these good draft picks all these fun prospects. You're probably going to get another fun prospect in 2021. And it's a city that has championship culture and a fan base that is knowledgeable, just like New York, um, that wants a winner and wants to see the team built up again. So when you get to the point where you've got all your great young players, then you can start to go to free agents and be like, you want to win a cup with the Red Wings? you know what it's like, you know it's a great ride. Plus there's a lot of players from Michigan that probably grew up as Red Wings fans where you can say, hey, you want that, you want that cup? Just like when you were a kid and you remember watching Stevie Eiserman win them, let's do it together. So I think you can have that fun, uh, you know, win it for the home team, uh, win it for the home city vibe with free agents. And then you also have the fun of having all these great prospects your Moritz Siders, your Lucas Raymonds, your Valenos, Philip Zadina. You know, it, I, I think it's that would be a fun uh, GM job to to steal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. From Stevie Y. Great answers. Uh, we have one sort of last bonus question that was just directed right at me because it's a movie question. Uh, and Craig Petter asked, "What does Matt Larkin think of the newest Aaron Sorkin movie? Does he foresee it garnering any Oscar buzz?" So that's Trial of the Chicago Seven. I haven't seen it yet, but I will be seeing it soon. Uh, Because I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan. His dialogue is like action in and of itself. It's so snappy and zippy. And I always love to, to, you know, a few good men, social network. It goes on and on. Uh, Oscar buzz. Yes, it is being talked up as an early Oscar contender. But the thing to remember is that because of COVID, uh, the deadline for what movies are considered, quote unquote, 2020 has been extended. So there's going to be movies coming out December, January, February that are still Oscar eligible. Oscar is going to be held in April this year for the first time. Latest Oscars ever. So you're going to get some real contenders because often the studios roll out the real Oscar contenders in a typical year, November, December, even leaking into January. So they're fresher in the voters' minds. So that to me is a vote against the Sorkin movie being an Oscar contender because a lot of studios haven't rolled out their real Oscar contenders yet. So I, I think fringe Oscar contender, but not guaranteed. I'm going to say it does get some nominations though. Okay. So Ryan, it's time for rapid fire. Are you ready? Let's do it. I am the host this week. My rapid fire questions are ready. So Ryan, question number one. Who is the best character on the wire? Best character on the wire. Oh, I'm going to go McNulty. Yeah, because he, I mean, like everybody loves Omar and Omar is fantastic, but McNulty really represents everything that's like wrong with everything. Good. I'm going to say Bunny Colvin. I think Bunny represents the heart of the show and what, what, arguments the show is trying to make it's always done through his character you know Hamsterdam and the school project all that kind of stuff uh who is the most exciting player you've ever watched live Ooh, that's a good one um I mean it's probably Connor McDavid because I've watched him since Minor Midget and those Toronto Marlboro days when he got the puck it's like oh no 
like something's something bad is going to happen to the other team right now. So yeah, I'll go Connor McDavid. Okay. I'm going to go for similar reasons. Pavel Bure, he, he just seemed to be in fast forward compared to every other player on the ice. Uh, what is the number one best Halloween candy? Oh yeah. Uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. I think I'm with you. I think it's the consensus. I even saw something the other day saying that it was voted number one. It's the one that, you know, you're digging through your bag and you're like, ooh, a Reese's. You're, you're pretty excited as opposed to, you know. Although I will say when I was a kid, I would have said Rockets. But now I don't like really mess with candy as much as chocolate. But Rockets when you were a kid were awesome because, I mean, there was like a perfect size. It's funny. I was about to, <laughs> I was literally about to diss Rockets right before you said that really? my, the bottom of my, of my pillowcase were, was always filled with rockets and those little like cube cubed caramels they were neglected till the very end oh candy corn yeah yeah <laughs> yeah candy corn's garbage okay you have a game seven of the stanley cup final you have to pick either doc emmerich or bob cole to call the game who do you choose oh doc emmerich because he'll know the names of the players yeah, Bob, Bob Cole will just be like, oh, the fans are standing. Oh, the goalie scores. Someone's going to win this game. Although, I, I mean, I love how Bob Cole calls games and the excitement is palpable. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll go Doc, Doc Emmerich. I'm going to go Bob Cole, and I admit it's just a bias toward my youth. And I'm, I'm assuming it's both guys in their prime, for the record. So this, this is prime years Bob Cole versus prime years Doc Emmerich. I think Doc Emmerich is more descriptive, but I just – the sound of Bob Cole, it's nostalgic. So I'll admit, it's, it's a, a biased answer for sure, just as a kid who grew up in Canada. Last question. Are you good at parallel parking? I'm pretty good, yeah. I, 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 I can do it, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm like a B-plus parallel parker. Okay. I'm totally inconsistent. I'm like Jeff Skinner of parallel parking. I'll have a stretch where I'm amazing for like a month, and then I'll be terrible at it and you know just be one of the worst parallel parkers for a while and then suddenly i'm i'm good again so i am the you need to line your car up with the car that you're pulling behind this is that's true. the key you got to be about like two-thirds of the way or like half the way lined up and then I, you pull down i concur and steven says try doing it with a boat attached to it i can't imagine steven i cannot imagine Look I, at, i've done it many times that ever happened and trust fund steven par- <laughs> oh no big deal just a yacht attached to my car well lottie da steven I'll, i wish i wish <laughs> it'd be great if you had to parallel park boats in the water yeah that well, probably you, work do. Very well. you do you do in a lot of cases yeah really yeah oh yeah, yeah. don't you have slips no it's like they it really depends on the, the dock a lot of docks are absolutely mm. horribly designed so and then there's morons who don't know how to park their own boats Mm. well you learn something new every day and on that note hope you enjoyed the all mailbag edition we will probably do another all mailbag edition before the next season starts so get your questions ready for next time thank you for listening and watching